for that. But uh, this morning, as we look into the word together, our, our theme here, our title, Know That the Lord Is God. And we can know that by experiencing the power of redemption. And so my question for us this morning, do you know God? Do you really know that the Lord is God? What does it mean then to truly know God? And how does one come to know him? I believe it was A.W. Tozer that said, that the most important thing about a person is what they thought about when they thought about God. Sometimes we think we know a person. We think we know someone, but really all we have is information about that person. One of my sons uh, just started taking an interest in collecting baseball cards, as I did when I was younger. Any baseball card collectors here this morning? A few, okay. Well, if you're not familiar, a baseball card has the photograph of the player on one side, and then on the back is all the statistics and information about them. So you might find on the back there uh, their height and weight, whether they're right-handed or left-handed, their birthplace, their hometown, and then all their statistics, their runs and RBIs and home runs and ERA and all the things that Major League Baseball keeps track of. So by reading the back of the baseball card, you can learn a lot about a player. And you might even pursue them further and go to their games. And you might even get introduced to them at at an autograph event or something and get a ball or a jersey or a hat with their autograph, their signature on it. And you can say that you were introduced to that person, but can you really say that you know them in the deepest sense? Well, what about God? We don't have a trading card. For the Lord, do we? We do have something better, though. We have his word that he's given to us. He's revealed himself in his word. This is his revelation to us, to know him. Many, though, read the word, they study the word, they memorize the word, yet they still do not know God. Do you know God, or do you just know about him? And if we say, yes, I know, I know God, my follow-up question for you is, what difference is it making in your life? What difference is it making? At what point does our knowledge of God move from the theoretical to the experiential? Have you experienced God this morning? In one sense, God is beyond our capacity to understand fully He is infinite, and our minds are finite. In fact, the Bible seems to say that that at some level, we cannot know God. Look with me at these following verses in Job. He cries out and says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. He is infinite. With whom did he take counsel, Isaiah asks us. And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? We learn so much of our knowledge by comparing things. 
I mean, how often have you told someone, well, in your, as you're describing an experience or an event or a movie or something or a place to go, it's kind of like this, but it's, it, it's a little bit different. And we have this all the time in our explanation. We explain our kids to our kids these things. And, and, and we learn by, by comparison. But with God, there is nothing to compare him to. Yes, he's called the shepherd and the father, and he puts these metaphors in Scripture to help us be able to grab hold of, of some truth about him. But he cannot be really compared to anyone else. He alone is peerless. Paul, in his, one of his many doxologies, Romans eleven thirty three, he cries out. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Yet there is also a sense in which the Bible calls us to know God. In Psalm 100, verse 3, the psalmist says, Know that the Lord, he is God. Know this. Grasp it. Understand it. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We cannot make ourselves. You cannot make yourself. You exist because you have been created. And scripture calls us to know our creator. David also cries out in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And Paul, again, speaking of Christ, his desire, his heart's passion was that I may know Jesus. I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so we continue to think this through and we ask ourselves, do I really know God? Do I really know him? Do I know that the Lord is God? I believe that is the question that 2 Chronicles chapter 33 is asking us this morning. Do we know the Lord and do we know that the Lord is God? Today we'll study the life of a king of Judah by the name of Manasseh. We will observe a man that began his reign as king in complete and utter wickedness. But because he experienced the power of redemption, he came to know that the Lord is God. We're going to divide the passage up. It's neatly divided for us. Actually, the text We'll be looking at, first of all, the king's disobedience, the king's discipline, and finally, the, really the good part. Yes, it has a good ending, the king's deliverance. So right now, I'd like to invite us all to set aside the distractions and the busyness of the week ahead for just a few moments together. And let's just walk through the passage together and see what the Lord would have us to learn. I want to invite us to allow the Spirit to do his work this morning in our hearts. Allow him to speak to us through his word. Let's pause. Let's drink deeply from the well of his word and let us know that the Lord is God. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you so much that 
you have revealed yourself to us. There are parts of you and things about you, Lord, that are too high, too mighty, too grand for our minds to grasp. But Lord, in these next moments, please allow your word to speak to us and reveal to us who you are through your word. Please allow the word to speak for itself this morning, as it always does, and help us to walk away different than when we came in, and we pray this in Jesus' name. So first of all, the king's disobedience. And maybe you've heard about Manasseh. I was talking to someone before the message, and they're like, oh, yeah, that king. Oh, that guy. Yeah. We're going to talk about him. We're going to see his disobedience. So in Second Chronicles 33, we'll start in verse number 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. It was not uncommon for kings to come in and be crowned at a young age, especially as they inherited the throne from uh, their deceased father, which was the case of Manasseh. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, verse 2. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. I would like us to notice two things about Manasseh's actions. Number one, Manasseh's actions were evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a key phrase to understand. It defines for us, helps us understand what kind of evil are we talking about here. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, God alone has the authority to define good and evil. We do not possess that authority. That only comes from God. He set the boundaries. He set what was right and what was wrong. And so when we try to categorize different things, we need to be basing that on his word. God defines what is evil. This also speaks of the idea of absolute truth, which unfortunately is becoming scarce in the society in which we find ourselves. The idea that everything's relative and everyone can have their own truth is unbiblical. God's eyes were watching Manasseh and he determined by his standard that his actions were evil. The second thing I want to point out is that his evil actions were the same abominations as the Canaanites that God had driven out of the land during the campaign of Joshua and the children of Israel. Remember, God called them. Deuteronomy is the sermon of Moses to that generation, that second generation that would enter the land. And Moses calls them through that whole sermon, that whole book of Deuteronomy, to destroy and, and tear down and do the, do the right thing. And, and it says in verse 3, for he rebuilt, speaking of Manasseh now, he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. We'll speak more about Hezekiah in a few minutes. He raised up altars for the Baals, made wooden images, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Uh, these high places, that's a phrase we hear a lot about in the Old Testament, and it is almost always associated with pagan, cultish practices, idolatry, and even child sacrifice. 
High, pa- high places were condemned as illegitimate worship locations and sinful by God. Here's something out of the uh, Bible dictionary that I looked up. The high places were common in the ancient Near East and seem to have been the normal places of worship for the Canaanite religion. While the Canaanites also had temples, the high places were smaller local shrines. Their location in elevated places may have been thought to give the worshipers closer proximity to the gods in the heavens. See, they, they thought if they elevated themselves up in elevation, physically they were closer to the heavens where they believed their gods were. I mentioned Deuteronomy. Let's look at what God said through Moses about these high places. Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 through 4, you shall utterly destroy. Notice the words that I've underlined. Utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. What else did Manasseh commit? Let's move on to verse 6, 2 Chronicles 33, 6. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son. This is quoting the Lord as he spoke to these these men. In this house, speaking of the temple, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. God sanctified this holy ground for his worship in his temple. Verse 8, And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinance by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. When we read verses 7 and 8 in that passage, we're reading excerpts from 2 Samuel and from Psalms where God is making a conditional promise to Israel. God also made unconditional promises as in no matter what you do, I'm still going to do this thing because I'm God and I said I was going to do it. But this, this one is conditional. It was based on their actions. God is saying, I will dwell with you at the temple. I will connect with you and commune with you. My presence will dwell there as long as you are careful to do all that I've commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinance by the hand of Moses. They had to obey. They had to follow if they wanted to connect and to know the Lord. Well, did Manasseh keep his end of the conditional promise? Let's see. What's the list that we're given? Child sacrifice, soothsaying, that's predicting the future using sorcery or witchcraft, 
uh, witchcraft and sorcery, demonic activities, mediums and spiritists attempting to speak to the dead or or demon uh, worship, pagan idols in the temple. This is an abomination to the Lord. There's also a parallel passage of Manasseh's life in the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. It's a bit of a depressing read, I'll warn you. It doesn't have the ending that the chronicler gives us here in 2 Chronicles 33. But look what it says there. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So besides all of the idolatry and the witchcraft, child sacrifice, killing his own sons. King Manasseh was bloodthirsty. He slaughtered his own people without cause and made Jerusalem a bloodbath. Manasseh was a murderer. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus stated that under his rule, daily executions were ordered by him. Tradition says, now this is just tradition, but it gives you an idea of his reputation. Tradition says that Manasseh was the king who murdered Isaiah the prophet by having him sawn in half. I want to go back to verse 9 where it says that Manasseh seduced Judah. Everything rises and falls on leadership. As goes the parents, so goes the home. As goes the pastor, so goes the church. As goes the national leader, so goes the nation. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And here's the king, the leader. Was supposed to be not only the political leader, but a spiritual leader. You see that throughout the Old Testament. The king was the one to call the priests and to set things up. But instead of doing that, he seduced. That word means to wander, to go astray, or to stagger. But it also means to deceive oneself. Vanessa's seduction of Judah was not him going, well, I know what's right, but I'm going to trick everybody else into doing what's wrong. His seduction of Judah was a self-seduction as well. After all, he was a king of Judah from the line of Judah. He seduced everyone, including himself. The worst lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And the people of his kingdom, under his leadership, turned away from God and did more evil than the Canaanites, which God had destroyed. And in doing so, he deceived himself. That is the king's disobedience. Not a good picture. Pretty low point in the history of Israel. Well, God was not ignoring this. Remember, he was doing the evil in the sight of the Lord, and now God begins to step in. And I want to pause there as we look at the king's discipline. I want to pause at verse 10 because I I think it's so powerful. I think it's so remarkable. It says, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. I am in awe of this verse. 
we just read a rap sheet that was a mile long, included horrendous, defiled, bloody, murderous actions. God's response is to speak to Manasseh. Of course, he did this through his prophets like Isaiah and probably others. But instead of fire and brimstone being poured out on them, God instead pours out mercy. He pours out grace. He calls out to to the king and to the people. And I would add that he's calling out to us. You know, when we look at our world today, we look at the political scene, we look at the, the national scene, the international scene, we see many modern-day Manassas, don't we? We see bloodthirst, wickedness, and yes, child sacrifice, children murdered every day to the gods of convenience, and lust, yet God still calls out to us all. He still calls. He's calling out to America. He's calling out to Russia and China, to the Middle East, Asia, the Americas, everywhere. He's calling out to the world leaders, just as he called out to this world leader. God is not silent He's not ignoring these things. He's calling out to them, and he's giving them grace, such grace. And I know sometimes we see things that we don't like, and we say, Lord, would you stop this? Would you just bring down your judgment and end it? And sometimes he does choose to do that. But I, for one, am so glad that he doesn't always choose to do that with every sinner. I would not be standing here. And if you're honest with yourself, you wouldn't be sitting here either. God is not only calling the the national leaders, but he's calling us all as individuals. God is calling you and me this morning. Have you made the personal choice to respond to God's call by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, his son, for your eternal life. See, God is is calling out to you right now through his word. It's a lot easier to talk about world leaders and others that are doing things that I would never do that. But what about about you? Here we sit in Unigrove Baptist Church in Unigrove, Wisconsin in 2023. We look back at 650 B.C. when Manasseh was doing all of this. But the message, the God, is still the same. It's the same God that called out to him that's calling out to us. What about you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? God is calling out to you right now. And I know you might say, hey, I'm I'm no Manasseh. I I haven't done anything like that. Well, that might be true, but that's not what God is looking at. He's not comparing you to Manasseh. He's not comparing you to anybody. 
except for his son, Jesus Christ, and your relationship with him. God loves you. Do you know that God loved Manasseh despite everything that we just read about? And do you know that God loves you despite everything you've ever done or said or any place you've been? Or any addiction or any anything? God loves you right now and he is calling out to you right now. Are you listening? I want to go through some verses as we part from Second Chronicles for a moment. These are very familiar verses. But you know, I've heard so many testimonies of young people and even older people that say, everyone thought I was a Christian. Everyone believed that I was a believer. But it turns out that, that I, really, I had never really made that a personal choice in my life. So these verses, please don't lose their power because of their familiarity. In Romans 3.23, it tells us that we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark of God's perfect glory, his perfect sinlessness. We can't meet that even on our best day. We've fallen short of that. In 6.23, it gives us the payment for our works so many are working their way or thinking they're working their way to heaven. If I just do these different ordinances and, and go to church at a you know, certain time and do these good deeds, then God is going to look at that and he's going to grant me eternal life. But those works, just like when we go to our jobs, we get a payment, right? We get a paycheck, we get a wage. God says, I, I can't give you a gift for your works because you're working. We don't work for gifts. We work for wages, God says the wages of sin is death, separation from God, eternal torment in hell. But then he says the gift of God. So he's saying stop working. I want to give you a gift, and that is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do, how do you get a gift? Pastor Rich does this with his books all the time. How do you get a gift? You put your hand out and you, you take it by faith. And that's what God is calling us to do. He says, for God so loved the world, for God so loved Josh, put your name in there, for God so loved you that he gave, he, he gave you, he gave you his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Christ, in Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life. We're going to go back to Manasseh in a moment, but I'd like to call out to you. Will you believe in Jesus right now and receive the gift of eternal life? It's not even a prayer to pray, although you can. It's simply believing by faith to receive the gift of eternal life. God is calling out to you, and it doesn't matter if everyone else thinks you're a Christian or not. And I'm not asking anyone to question their salvation. That's the last thing we're, that we want to promote. If you're saved, you, if you know, you know, right? But if you're not certain, and you, or maybe you do know that it's never really been a real thing in my life, what everybody thinks about you is not going to matter for eternity, is it? What really matters is if you have put your faith 
in Christ. I wish I could say that Manasseh listened, but he didn't. They refused God's call like so many people refuse the message, the call that was just given of the gospel. So in verse 11, we'll pick it up again. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now comes the consequences. Now God is bringing to bear the the consequences of Manasseh's action. First of all, the invasion of an enemy army. Manasseh's grandfather was a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was a vassal king under a king of Assyria. In a vassal situation, it was a kind of a treaty. It was called a suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain king was the one that won. He was the the more powerful force, but he allowed the other king, known as the vassal king, to continue to sit on his throne and lead his kingdom as long as he paid tribute to the suzerain king. And Ahaz, Manasseh's grandfather, was a vassal to the king of Assyria. But when Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, came into power, there was a shift in power in Assyria and in Israel. Hezekiah began to pursue God. And with God's help, he threw off the king of Assyria and defended his nation, and they threw off that treaty and became independent once again. And Manasseh had been living in that freedom this, his entire life, or most of his life. So now the freedom is gone, and they're back in captivity, many of them. Certainly Manasseh was. Notice it says hooks there. These were a literal ring that was pierced through the nose. It was attached to a rope or a chain that led whoever was pierced around basically by their nose. And you know how sensitive the nose is. You think about the excruciating pain and then having it pulled. You're going to go wherever that cord is pulling you. You think of the humiliation of this. Treated like an ox or a cattle. Also, it says fetters, bronze fetters or chains. Manasseh was further humiliated with heavy bronze chains. His wrists, maybe even his ankles, were bound, and he shuffled along as a slave the many, many miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the the mighty, proud king of Israel was now reduced, lowered to the status of a slave. Why? Because he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we've seen his disobedience. We've seen his discipline. I'd like to look now at his deliverance. First of all, we'll divide that up into a couple of smaller sections. The first section of his deliverance will be Manasseh's prayer. So there's Manasseh over in Babylon, bound, fettered, nose ring, not a jewelry, something painful and humiliating. 
And he's sitting there, and notice his response. Now when he, Manasseh, was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. I want to notice a few things out of this, out of these verses. First of all, notice that Manasseh realizes that he is in affliction. And I know it's like, well, duh, like obviously he knew, he knew that. But he, he understands the reason why, and he understands that the reason he's in affliction is because he chose to disobey God. You know, there's so many and I've been in this position as a younger person, that suffer affliction because of sin. Not every affliction is because of sin, but some of them are. And so many suffer affliction because of sin, but they never get to this point that Manasseh is. They never really recognize that, hey, if I would just turn back to God, my afflictions, at least these ones, God could help me through. It's a refusal to acknowledge God. Well, it's just circumstance. Well, it's bad luck. Well, it's all their fault. It's all because of, of someone else. And we deflect oftentimes when we're in affliction and God is working in our hearts. Manasseh does not deflect. He understands that his affliction is from God. You know, when, when we were going through the Revelation series, and all these judgments get poured out on the earth, you remember? And God is trying to get their attention, right? That's the whole purpose of these judgments is God's calling out to the earth, just like he's calling out to us and to Manasseh, but these afflictions are really, really bad, and people are dying, and it's really awful. But more times than not, and I don't know that there is a time where people turn, or at least it doesn't seem to be recorded in Revelation, but it seems like every time God adds another judgment and they get worse as they go along, the people just seem to get more and more bitter and angry at God. Um, I was thinking of this passage in Revelation 16 where the, the angel pours out the bowl on the sun, and, and what happens is God just allows the sun's heat to per- permeate the atmosphere in a way that it does not right now. And it warms the surface of the earth. It scorches it actually with fire. So these men, and, and it means men and women, people were scorched with this great heat and they, they blasphemed the name of God. Instead of turning to him and praying to him and asking for mercy, they get more embroiled in their bitterness and their anger and they blaspheme God and they did not repent and give him glory. As wicked and bloody as Manasseh is, or was, Manasseh stands in judgment of this generation that we read about in, Je- in Revelation, and I believe he stands in judgment of people today that refuse to acknowledge their affliction and their struggles are because they need to turn to, to the Lord. Manasseh understood two things. Number one, Manasseh understood that he was in affliction from God. The other thing he understood and and was willing to admit was that he deserved it. 
he understood, I blew it. I, I made my own choices. Remember, he seduced himself and his kingdom to do all those things. Lined up people every day for executions and all the other idolatry and pagan worship. He understood his place before the Lord. We also see that he implored the Lord. He made actually three choices. After he acknowledged his affliction, he didn't deflect it. He didn't make excuses for himself. He implored the Lord. He humbled himself greatly, and he prayed. He made three choices, and this is exactly what God was waiting for. God is waiting for the humble heart to emerge. God is waiting for us to bow before him, implore the Lord his God. What does that mean? He's recognizing who's in charge. He's recognizing that God is sovereign. He's recognizing that God alone can save. He's no longer depending on his own self. He's not depending on his position as king. He's not depending on his own strength. He's let that all go, and he says, only God can save me now. Then he humbled himself greatly, fell on his face before the God of his fathers. Not before the other gods. Remember, he set up all those altars and pagan shrines and things, the high places. He didn't go there. He didn't go back to the the poles and and the altars of the false gods. He fell down and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, recognizing that he alone was worthy to be humbled before. And then he prayed to God. This is what God wants from us, a humble heart. In James, he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The apostle Peter, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And I want to be clear, and I mentioned this a moment ago. This does not mean that every affliction that we go through is because of sin. That was the mistake Job's friends made. You remember when they were talking to him? They said, Job, God always blesses the good people and always pours out judgment on the bad people. (laughs) It's not true, is it? I see a lot of evil people flourishing, living to a ripe age and enjoying, enjoying as much as they can enjoy the physical blessings of this world. And I also see a lot of godly people that suffer and are wounded and are carrying heavy burdens. Some of you are carrying heavy burdens and it's not because you have sinned. But whether affliction comes from our sin or someone else's sin or just because of the sin-sick world that we live in, God is looking for humbleness. He's looking for humble hearts because it is only with humble hearts that he can do anything. That doesn't mean his power is somehow limited, but that is his choice. That is his prerogative as sovereign creator of the universe. He chooses to only work with humble hearts. Are we willing to humble ourselves before the Lord this morning? So we have Manasseh's prayer. Secondly, we move from prayer to provision. Let's look what God does in verse 13, and this is really the key verse of this passage. So if you remember nothing else, remember 2 Chronicles 33, 13. This is where everything 
comes together. It says, and he, speaking of God, received his, speaking of Manasseh's entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. It doesn't say how he did it. It just says that he was brought back. But here's our key phrase. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is the grand conclusion. This is the climax of this whole passage. Manasseh finally knew God. He finally understood God for who he really was. Manasseh knew all about God before this. But now he knew God through the power of redemption, and we cannot know God unless we experience him through the power of his redemption. You see, Manasseh, like many people today, grew up in a home in a nation where God was worshipped and feared. Maybe you've heard about his father. We mentioned him earlier, Hezekiah. Let's see what the Bible tells us about Manasseh's dad. In 2 Kings 18, speaking of Hezekiah, it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. What a stellar report. What a contrast, isn't it, with Manasseh's report. This was the man in whose household Manasseh was brought up. The same Manasseh we read about, the bloody, idolatrous, murderer, was brought up in the home of this man that we just described here. He grew up knowing all about God. There weren't even high places. Many of the kings did good things, but they always forgot to go tear down the high places. Hezekiah said, I'm not having it. We're doing this right. We're doing this by the book. High places are coming down. We're going to worship in the temple. We're going to set up the priests. We're going to do all the things that God has prescribed. Manasseh saw, he witnessed all this. He saw the temple being used by the priests to worship Yahweh. He saw the high places torn down. He saw that the sacrificial system was in full use, exactly as God had commanded he saw the celebrations and the festivals and the feasts and everything that the law says, everything it prescribes, and he saw his father standing steadfast and true to the God of Israel, yet he still chose to turn his back and completely walk away from the faith of his father. Manasseh was a prodigal son in every sense of the word. And this is not only an ancient world problem, it is a modern-day malady in our churches right here in America in 2023. Young people by the thousands are walking away from church, walking away from faith, walking away from what they've been brought up in. 
Walking away from God. Why? Well, I think there's probably many reasons. I believe one of the most prevalent reasons is that they only have a knowledge about God, but they've never really known God. So I want to speak to our teenagers for a moment. I've been speaking to everybody the whole time, by the way. But specifically to our teenagers, junior high, even, even our elementary children that are in here. What about you? Do you know only about God? Is God just information on the back of a trading card for you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can memorize some verses and you know a lot of what the Bible has to say about different events and Jesus and all of that. But you young people, do you only know about God or do you actually know God? Do you know that the Lord is God? Have you experienced redemption and the power that it brings to know God? Those of us that are adults and parents and leaders and teachers, we have such a critical role to play in this. I'm so thankful for our Sunday school teachers who are going to, in a few moments, be downstairs teaching their classes. First of all, thank you, teachers, for doing that. Thank you for the sacrifice you make to not be in a class yourself, but to teach and to prepare each week. Your work is so critical because you're not only teaching our children about God, you are teaching our children to to know God. It's a personal thing, and they see it in your life, and I'm so appreciative of that. This is a critical mandate as Adults to help our children, help the next generation rise to the level of, above the level, I should say, of just knowing about God and help them to know God. Help them to experience God. How many young Manassas are sitting in here today that at the age of 18 they're going to just walk away? I hope none. Now, they have their own choice to make. We can't make that choice for them. But let's make sure that we've done everything we can. We've exhausted every resource possible. That's why children and teen ministries are so crucial in the church. It's a generational ministry. It's vital to the life of the church. It's vital to their own eternity. So we we have prayer. We move to... uh, provision, and then we're going to see Judah's protection. We're going to divide that up into two two sections. First of all, we're going to see physical protection. So Manasseh's back on his throne, probably as a vassal king. I believe that's probably the most logical thing, was he was allowed to come back if he would pay tribute. I don't have the evidence in front of me for it, but I believe that's probably what happened. But he was able to do some things. He was able to do some things different, and he did. Verse 14, after this, Manasseh built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it up to a very great height Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. 
Manasseh's been restored graciously by God. Again, another picture of grace. Aren't you glad for God's restoring grace? What a picture of it here. He wastes no time in getting to work. He assumes, immediately assumes his kingly duties. Government's job is to protect citizens. That is exactly what he chooses to do. He obediently follows the God-given mandate to protect his citizens. Instead of using his soldiers and military to kill his own people, as he did before, now he sets them up to protect his people. Not only did he provide physical protection, but secondly, he chose to provide spiritual protection. Verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. I just love that phrase. He cast them out. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel, the same man that had seduced Judah into sin and idolatry, now commands them to serve the Lord God of Israel. He assumes his political leadership, but also his spiritual leadership. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So this really wasn't what God wanted. Um, remember, Hezekiah was one of the few kings to tear the high places down. But as, as we read, there's no one greater before or after Hezekiah. And so he doesn't quite get everything right, but what a picture of Manasseh's dedication to God. It, the evidence could not be more clear. He was completely sold out for the Lord. He wanted to obey God with the same fervor that he had wanted to disobey him. And that gives me hope for those that I see. It gives a hope for for all of us, but especially those that we see that are living in deep, dark sin. World leaders that are killing their people. Do you know that there's grace for them as well? There's grace for the dictators of this world. There's hope for those that are murderers and idolaters. There's always hope, isn't there, in Christ? So now Manasseh moved from just knowing about God factually. Now he knew God in his experience. And it completely and radically transformed his life. If we have truly know, if we truly know God, if we have experienced the power of redemption, there should be a radical change in our life. I say should be because it's not always the case. So what about us this morning? We we went through the gospel already, really clearly, I think, I hope it was. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? God is calling out to you right now. Will you accept the free gift of salvation? The free gift of eternal life through Christ alone, putting your faith in him. 
You might know a lot about God, but do you know him? And most importantly, does he know you? Oh, I know that he knows you because he knows everything. But is there a relationship? And are you growing in it? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, could I say that you have begun to know him? And I include myself. We can never stop knowing about God. We can never get to the end of God. We can never know enough. Are we pursuing our relationship? It's, it's a lifelong pursuit. Do we take this seriously? Do you know him better today than you did before? Remember what Manasseh did after he experienced the power of redemption when he got back to the temple that was filled up with all those altars and idols? Cast them out of the city. He cleaned house. And the question I'm asking myself and I'm asking you to ask yourself this morning is, as you examine the temple of your heart, are there idols and altars that you have made to your gods that need to be cast out? If you've truly experienced the power of redemption, are you willing to cast those out of your life? I'd like us to close our eyes, please, and bow our heads just for a moment. Just for a quiet moment of stillness as we consider what the word has said to us this morning. If you've never believed on the Lord, will you do it today? God is calling you to believe. And Christian, if there are idols and altars in your heart, Will you cast them out? Will you just do some business with the Lord right now in the stillness of this moment? Will you ask the Lord to expose those things to you? The uncleanness, the idolatry that lurks in our hearts. We're self-deceived just as Manasseh was. Even as Christians, we can be self-seduced. Ask the Lord to expose it to you. Ask him to show you Father, as we conclude our time this morning, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the true historical account of Manasseh, king of Judah. Lord, I thank you that your grace is just threaded through the whole Bible. All 66 books carry the message of sin and redemption and restoration in a cycle that repeats itself over and over again and is still repeating itself today. Lord, I pray for that one or possibly more that are here or the watching online that have not put their faith and trust in you. Will you please help them to put aside their pride and humble themselves before you and put their faith in Christ? Lord, those of us that know you, I, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you. May we search our hearts. Lord, will you search our hearts for us so that we're not deceived? And please, Lord, reveal in our lives the altars and idols. And Lord, most of all, that you would help us to know that the Lord is God. We pray this in Jesus' name.